Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of the House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. LegacyFoodStorage.com Welcome. Come on in. Pull up a stool. And let me pour you a drink. And let's talk a little noir at the bar. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the Left Coast Crime in Seattle, April 11th to 14th. So not only do you get to hear them on the show here, you can go visit them, meet them, and maybe get a book signed. All right, up first, we have Glenn Eric Hamilton. Now, uh, welcome to the Noir at the Bar Reading Glen. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, you've been on the show before. We've had you on, and we had you on about this book, I believe, Island of Thieves. It came out in uh, July of 21. So um, maybe set up the book or what you're going to read from it or what part. I write a series of mystery thrillers about a semi-reformed professional thief named Van Shaw, and the latest in the series is Island of Thieves. And in Island of Thieves, Shaw is hired as a security consultant to protect the art collection of a billionaire businessman who has recently purchased an island in the San Juans off of the Washington State coast, envisioning it as his flagship location, uh, building it as a, as a sort of a Camp David West. But on the island's first major gathering, Shaw runs into a spot of trouble. And I'll be reading from a passage in the book covering that. Fantastic. Looking, looking forward to it. So Shaw retreated to the shore and headed for the gallery again. He stepped nimbly over the splits and the rock and the small permanent pools waiting for the advancing tide to refresh them. Moonlight tinted the phosphorescent curl of each wave. Then he saw the hand. It extended up from the rock as if the shore had somehow formed around it, pale fingers stretching skyward. Reminiscent of every zombie movie poster Shaw had ever seen, a clutching claw dragging its way out of the grave. He stared for an instant. A wave splashed over and around the hand and then retreated, leaving the pale fingers dripping. He moved toward the ghastly scene. A deep crevice in the rock revealed itself, like a sliver of night in the island. Each step allows Shaw to see another inch of the arm attached to the white hand. The sleeve of a dark jacket had fallen nearly to the arm's elbow. In another few strides, he was next to the fissure, looking down at the rest of the body within. Nelson Bow, unquestionably dead. He lay on his right side with his head toward the water and a few inches lower than his legs and feet, an awkward position defined by the shape of the rock beneath him. Bow's left knee rested on a cluster of barnacles. The serrated edges of the tiny shells had torn the fabric of his trousers. His left arm had become wedged in one of the crevice's stony wrinkles, holding it aloft. Without the beckoning hand, Shaw might have stepped over him, not even noticed. Bow's head didn't look normal, even under the circumstances. Shaw knelt for a closer examination. The crown of the chemist's skull was misshapen, staved in, his left profile as pale as his hand. Lips parted and teeth showing, the eye halfway open. As Shaw watched, a surge flooded the crevice, washing over the body. Bow's clothes flapped, and his hair swirled momentarily. Even the body moved, buoyed by the water. Then the wave retreated, and everything settled back into place. Only the trapped arm remained perfectly still. Shaw took a deep breath. 
Bao had lost a lot of blood, his crushed head almost certainly the cause, a powerful enough blow to create a large divot in the man's skull. The waves had washed the body clean and would continue to do so. Hard to imagine Bao tripping and falling so violently on the flatter part of the beach. Had he been running for some reason and taken a spill? High tide had been around midnight. Assuming Bao had died here, it must have been afterward, maybe only by a few minutes. An ebbing tide couldn't have come up high up on the beach and carried his body outward. Assume that Bao had suffered the injury to his head farther up on the beach, out of the water. For what had happened after that, Shaw could only think of two possibilities. Bao had crawled or staggered into the water and died, or someone had dragged him in, maybe with the hope that the tide would carry the body out into the street. Either way, Bao had become lodged in the crevice by the surging waves, and here Shaw stood but did not move away. He didn't want to chance stepping on or kicking anything loose from where it might lie. People didn't generally carry around blunt objects. They took advantage of what was there. He walked slowly in a wide circle, scanning the ground, leaving his flashlight in his pocket. No reason to attract attention until he was ready. When his first circle came up empty, he walked a larger one without much expectation. If there had been a weapon, a rock, or a driftwood log, it could have been taken away or thrown a distance, on land or into the water. It wasn't close in any event. He returned to where Bao lay. Another surge of tide forced the body into a false dance. When it subsided, Sean knelt and leaned down to dip his hands into the chill froth and grab hold of the jacket's lapels. He heaved, pulling the body from the crevice. Bao's trapped arm came loose and flopped coldly onto Shaw's face. Grimacing, he set the arm down gently, the least he could do after Bao had signaled for help from beyond the river. From the dead man's jacket, Shaw removed a wallet and a passport folder. His smartphone had been shattered by the fall. It didn't respond when Shaw tried turning it on. The wallet clip held American bills, flimsy after their saltwater soak, and a Chase Bank debit card along with a Washington State driver's license. That was a surprise. Bao had said he'd never been to the state before, and here was his license with an address in the Central District of Seattle. Shaw replaced the wallet and unzipped the passport holder, the deep red cover of the People's Republic of China. He flipped it open. The photo was undoubtedly the chemist, staring placidly back. The name given in English lettering below the Chinese characters was Yen Silong, born in Guangdong province. The issue date for the passport was two years prior. Not necessarily odd, Shaw thought. Loads of people from other nations had westernized names to go with their first names, and the link between the two wasn't always obvious. But combined with Bao's white lie about his Seattle address, Shaw wondered whether the other secrets Bao held. He rezipped the passport folder, wiping his fingerprints from it, and set it back in Bao's pocket. Another tidal surge filled the crevice. The water lapped over the edges and onto the corpse. Bao stared up with sightless eyes. He looked slightly accusatory being left in this undignified state. Sorry, Shaw said to the dead man, and reached for his phone to call Anders. Well, fantastic. Um, I have to say, you're, you're very descriptive. Do you, do you actually put yourself in the, in the scene um, when you're writing something like that? Do you, do you put yourself where... Where, where you're writing about in order to sit around and come up with all the descriptions? Absolutely, yes. If I, if I can go to a physical location, all the better. I'll try to take notes about where I'm there. But as far as putting myself in the scene, I have a theater background. One of my first rules of writing is always to, to read out loud and try to imagine what the character is feeling at that moment and the emotions going through them. Um, coming out of reading a lot of plays and, and acting in a lot of plays, you know, the first the first thing, everything comes from within, especially when you're uh, narrating from the character's point of view. Well, it comes across great, fantastic, and, and thank you for doing the reading. And we look forward to seeing you at the uh, Left Coast Grime in Seattle. Absolutely. See you there. Okay, and now we go down to John, and he's always at the uh, noisiest part of the bar. Well, down here at my end of the bar, I have Hal Glatzer reading from his book, The Nest, um, A New Kind of Cozy. Hal, I'll let you take it away. Thank you. Uh, this is a kind of Reader's Digest condensed version of how the nest begins. My protagonists, Herman and Teddy, alternate the narration in first-person voices. Herman begins. Chapter Zero. Detective Larson led us into an interrogation room and switched on a video camera. We figured the district attorney was watching. Grand Lake City, Hall of Justice, August 26, 2018. 
The subjects of this interview have been advised of their Miranda rights and have an attorney present. Counselor, your clients are here because they are persons of interest in a murder investigation. Have you explained the risk they face that what he or she says here may be used in evidence should either or both of them be charged with murder? I have made that clear, Detective. Good. Now, the two of you, do you understand the risks and consent to be interviewed? I understand and I consent. I do too. All right. Let's hear what you have to say. Chapter 1. I wrote this book to explain what happened to Teddy and me and the trouble we got into last August. For almost two years, she and I had been renting a studio in an apartment house that we came to feel was the cause of it all. Teddy. Wait. When Herman told me he was going to work everything into a book, my first reaction was to kick him in the shins. I didn't do that, but I did tell him he had to let me put something of my own in the book. I didn't want it to be only what he saw, what he said, and what he said I said. But I agree that if you're reading this, you need to know that our trouble began in the Falk Pond apartments, and that we might not have put our lives at risk if we had rented anywhere else in town. Herman. The Falk Pond Apartments is a pair of mirror-image, two-story buildings in a rustic style, like a lodge in the mountains. Every apartment has a balcony facing a wide atrium between the buildings that's open to the sky with tall grasses, trees, ferns, and flowers along both sides of an artificial mountain stream. Teddy. You'll want to know what we look like, too. Herman's in good shape for a guy who'll be 67 next January. He's clean-shaven with a lantern jaw like a cartoon hero. And true, his brown hair is more than half gray, and it's gone from the top of his head, but he dresses well and has very good diction. Also, he's terrific in bed, a perfect fit, if you know what I mean. Herman. Teddy's what novelists used to call live, except for those high-definition muscles in her arms and legs from playing tennis. Her face is round, her eyes green, her nose just a little bigger, and her mouth just a little smaller than you'd expect a good-looking woman to have. But I like her looks, and she's uninhibited, which adds to her sex appeal. Teddy. Nobody except Herman is likely to consider me sexy. I'm too flat and skinny to be mistaken for a porn star. No hairdresser has ever been able to tame the thatch on my head, though mine does keep turning the gray black, which helps me seem a few years less than... Shh, 63. Herman. Our trouble started on August 23rd, when Ward Tyson, our landlord, came by. I didn't know at the time how many units he owned, but ours and our next-door neighbors were two of them. When he knocked, I opened the door. Hi, Ward, what's up? Mind if I come in? Okay. I brought him out onto the balcony. I just want a word with you and Theodora. I'll tell her you stopped by. Any message? Well, yes. You've had three six-month leases on this unit, and your current lease expires in December. He opened his briefcase and handed me a printout on letterhead stationery. I just want you to know I will not be renewing your lease. Have we done something wrong? What's the problem? No, 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 you are wonderful tenants. You are quiet, you always pay on time, and in cash, which is, oh, cash is easier for us. Okay, look, I want to take over your unit, and Josephine's unit next door. Nobody's buying studios anymore. I'm going to bust through the wall and make these two units into a one-bedroom apartment. He looked toward the next-door studio. Is Josephine in? I don't know. She's a good-looking woman, don't you think? I'm married. Thanks for the heads-up about the lease. I led him back through our apartment and closed the door behind him. Teddy. When I got to the apartment that afternoon, Herman was on the balcony. He looked up and smiled. Hello, ducky. Hello yourself, Drakey. We'd given each other nicknames the first week we had the apartment. Walking all the way around Falk Pond, pausing to watch the ducks, I'd called him Ducky, but being a guy, he wanted to be called Drakey. So I took Ducky for myself, and that led to calling our apartment The Nest. August 23rd should have been like every other midweek day, but it wasn't. We even got a sort of a warning that night about what could happen, though of course we didn't see it that way at the time. We hadn't been to a movie in weeks, so we took in a comedy mystery called Look Out Below. A husband and wife get accused of murder, hide from the police, get chased by the killer, and wind up solving the crime themselves. We were back in the nest a little after 11 and climbed into bed. Herman. 
I woke up in the dark, startled by a noise that sounded like a splash. I spooned behind Teddy again, slept again, and woke up just as the sun was rising. I put on my robe and glasses, started the coffee maker, went out onto the balcony, powered my phone on, and brought up the online edition of our local newspaper, The Herald. After scanning the headlines, I set the phone down and let myself be distracted by the sunrise that glistened on tiny ripples in the stream that meandered through the atrium. I sipped a little more coffee and touched my phone again, intending to return to the news, but I glanced into the atrium. There was a lump of something in the stream. I stood up and leaned over the railing for a better look. A man in a pale blue shirt and black pants lay face down in the water. All I know about things like this is what I see on TV crime shows, but it could be a dead body. Stepping inside, I nudged Teddy. Wake up, Ducky. You need to see this. She tilted her head and frowned a silent rebuke, but she got up, pulled on her robe, and followed me onto the balcony. Looking over the rail, she said, only a fraction of a second before I did, We have to call 911, Teddy. So I guess this is a good time for me to spill some beans. We signed the lease as Herman and Theodora Korn. We both wear third-finger rings, and I always give the landlord's family a big smile when they call me Mrs. Korn. But last night was special. We don't usually get to spend a whole night together. Most days, we have lunch, then we shed our clothes and climb into bed. We smoke half a joint, then cuddle and snuggle, touch and stroke, kiss and lick, meld and merge, quiver and bump. You get the picture. We have a little nap wake up around four o'clock, shower together, and towel each other off with a little more necking. And by five o'clock on a typical day, we're out the door, waving to each other in the parking lot as I head home to my husband and Herman goes home to his wife. How that was wonderful, wonderful reading, too. So this is a really original pairing, Herman and... Teddy, where did you come up with the ideas for these characters? Well, I think nobody's tried this before. Cozies are full of all kinds of people. You've got, you know, lawyers and doctors, but you've got people who have craft stores and widows and uh, older folks. But I don't think, and I'm willing to be corrected on this, but I don't think we've ever had a husband and wife uh, accidental sleuth team who aren't actually married to each other, uh, and who are, in, in the words of young people today, friends with benefits. <laughs> and part of the problem that Herman and Teddy have in the course of this story is keeping secret the fact that they are not married to each other. As another layer of tension. Well, the, it seems like a wonderful setup, and I certainly encourage folks to go out and purchase the nest. Thank you so much. Thank you. At my end of the bar, I am enjoying a delicious beverage with uh, Kathy Ace, who will be reading from Corpse with the Opal Fingers. A, I think it's Kate Morgan number 13, uh, and this is available now. So go ahead, Kathy, looking forward to this. Yes, you're right. It's the 13th in the Kate Morgan mystery series, and um, like me, Kate Morgan is Welsh-Canadian, so that's where the accent's from. Unlike me, she's a professor of criminal psychology and She's on vacation in Sydney, in Australia, with her husband, Bud, who fortunately, as it turns out, is a retired homicide detective. Um, I'm going to read from the beginning of the book, which is a traditional book. It's a Christie-shaped book with lots of red herrings and suspects and a final denouement where the killer or killers are unmasked. And at the beginning of the book, Kate and Bud have gone off on a sunset dinner cruise around Sydney Harbour, and they're joined by Kate's sister and her husband. They're all off in Sydney for a mining convention. Ooh, joy of joys. That's why they're on a dinner cruise. There's a large group of men on the cruise with them whose role in life is to build roads for mining companies. They cut the roads through the outback and the bush, and they're endearingly known as the mob. And the mob have just settled down to do a bit of yarning, as mobs do. And that's where we're going to pick up in the first chapter of The Corpse with the Opal Fingers. I'm afraid you're going to have to invent the Australian accents because, like me, Kate is hopeless at them. And this is told in the first person from Kate's point of view. I was ten years old when I found a murder weapon, said a gravelly voice from somewhere within the crowd. My curiosity kicked in immediately, of course, and I craned my neck to try to spot who'd spoken. There was a cheer, a couple of shouts of, Good on you, mate! 
and the canary-shirted men began to congregate with expectant faces. Bud smiled at me indulgently and said, That's an opening line. It's too good to ignore, right? I hugged my always understanding husband as we gravitated toward the huddle that was gathering around a few tables, which were already littered with empty bottles and glasses. A voice called from the edge of the crowd, How do you find this so-called murder weapon, Lenny, mate? Lenny Hawkins, a man I'd already encountered a few times during our days in Sydney, leaned in, his weathered face and raisin eyes glowing with the promise of a tale that would be worth hearing. Lenny scratched his face thoughtfully, then began, It was summer, and all the local water holes had dried up, except one, the biggest and deepest. When the wood was high, no one could ever reach the bottom. That was the dare, see? Get to the bottom and pick up a stone to prove you got there. Like I said, no one ever managed it. But with the levels so low... I reckoned I could do it. So I jumped from an outcrop that hung over the water, got all the way down and made a grab for anything, really. Came up with a big stick in my hand, or so I thought. Turned out to be a rifle. It proved I got to the bottom, see? And on top of that, I was a hero because I'd found a gun. Huge excitement for a bunch of young fellas, as you might imagine. I washed it off and took it home with me, handed it to my granddad, who gave me a pat on the head for my trouble. I didn't find out it was a murder weapon until 20 years later, when he died. Turned out, he'd kept it rolled in a blanket in a tin trunk at the foot of his bed all that time. I was clearing out his place after he'd gone, and there it was. I handed it in at the local cock shop and thought that would be the end of it. Then it turns out, they'd been looking for it all that time. Who'd the gun killed, mate? asked someone. The girl with the opal fingers, said Lenny ominously. You're kidding, said someone just behind me. Bloody oath, said Lenny, sounding wounded that someone thought his claim unlikely. Bud and I stared at each other, round-eyed and clueless. I turned to see who'd spoken, but my view was blocked by a young man I'd already met a few times. Neil was the baby of the mob, the son of Big Stan, who owned the company they all worked for. Neil stage whispered, She was a kid who got shot out in the bush a long time back. Sad story. Had this weird ability. You could give her a map and she could point to exactly where you should dig to find opals. She made a lot of money for a lot of people, I heard. She was almost 20 when she died, son, not a kid, really. Big Stan leaned his great bulk towards us, then addressed the group as a whole. A tragedy. They never got the bloke who did it until Lenny found the rifle. Then she finally got justice. Yeah, agreed Lenny. They reckoned the rifle must have been in that waterhole for at least a year before I pulled it up. They matched the bullets they, uh, you know, found, and they easily worked out who it belonged to, and that was that. Big Stan said, some bloke she refused to work for shot her down, right? Lenny nodded sagely. Yeah, it was his rifle, big old double-barrel thing it was, and me finding it again sewed it up for the cops. Thanks to my granddad, it took them far too long, but they got him in the end. It looked to me as though Big Stan was about to comment, but a voice cut in, Good yarn, Lenny, but I can go on better. The man who called out was standing right behind where Lenny was seated. He was about twice his breadth and squat, with a head that resembled me, reminded me of a bulldog. Lenny chuckled. Go on, Lenny, you're up next, Shorty. Can't help yourself, can you, mate? Got to outdo everyone, right? Shorty cleared his throat. I didn't just find a murder weapon, even if it was used in one of the most infamous murders ever. Nah, I saw an actual murder happen right in front of me. The announcement brought a round of applause and lots of hooting. I felt my right eyebrow shoot up, which led Big Stan to observe, smiling. All in good humour, Kate. Don't go getting your knickers in a twist. Yarning's a harmless way for us to have our fun, right, men? He waved an arm. Get on with it, Shorty, mate. Shorty did. It was summer in Alice Spring. It was just before Christmas a few years back. It was too hot to want to do anything but suck on a beer. The hour this all happened... There was a storm on the way. You could feel it on your skin, but it wouldn't break, you know what I mean? The sort of weather only the flies enjoy. The boozer was full, someone knocked over a beer, and it all kicked off from there. Fists flew, then a knife came out, and it got serious, fast. I saw a bloke get stabbed, and I saw who did it. Wished I hadn't. Brutal. Nasty. The bloke on the floor didn't get up, and we're all backing off. But there was this kid who used to hang around the pub who had a few kangaroos loose in the top paddock, you know? The only one stupid enough to pick up the knife that had been dropped by the mongrel who'd stuck it in in the first place. So there's this bloke on the floor dying, and the kid's just standing there, the knife in his hand, and of course he got grabbed by everyone. I thought they'd tear him apart. Now, as you all know, I'm not one to dob a man in. 
But I couldn't say nothing, could I? So I shouted that I'd seen who'd really done the stabbing, and eventually they let the kid go. He wasn't too crook, but it could have gone real bad for him. Then the boys in blue turn up and cart off the scumbag who'd really done it. Nasty piece of work he was. Everyone knew it. Always just on a simmer, ready to boil over. The town was glad to see the back of him. Me too, to be honest. For some reason, he seemed to think we was mates, though I'd crossed the street to avoid him. Of course, they dragged me down the cop shop too, to swear to what I'd seen. Had to do it. Too many people had heard me speak up. Is that even really murder? shouted someone. Shorty replied, I think the family of the dead bloke reckoned it was. I can do even better than that. Heads turned toward the only other twenty-something in the group. His slight figure was hovering to one side of the main huddle. I knew his name was Ditch, and I'd felt sorry for him on more than one occasion. No one took much notice of him until they needed him to fetch beers, which was why I'd heard his name called out so often. Neil said, Go on then, Ditch, mate. Tell us what. Ditch didn't raise his eyes as he spoke quietly. I know about someone getting away with murder, because no one even knew it was one. A young server passed by with a fully laden tray, tripped, sending a shower of bottles and glasses crashing to the floor, which tore everyone's attention away from young Ditch. She looked horrified, but got the biggest cheer of the night. Neil moved to clear the debris and called Ditch over to help. They carefully collected the shards of glass, and the crowd began to break apart. That was great. And as I'm listening to this, I'm going, there are a lot of really good other characters uh, besides the main ones that have a lot of depth. And I'm just wondering uh, where they come from for you. Uh, how, how did you find, uh, yeah, there's a lot of them, so how did you find all these different characters and put them all together with your main characters? Well, in this particular instance, it's because I met them. I actually met the mob when I was in Australia. Um, and whilst I have not written about the actual individuals I met, Certainly, I took their heart, their love of life, their ability to grab it by the neck and wring every bit of joy and pleasure out of it. And I've tried to bring that into life on the page. Most of these characters do continue through the book. And, and you're right, they do have depth. They do have l lives that they've lived. And I hope that comes through on the page because they are an integral part of the book. For me, when Kate travels... She doesn't just trip over corpses wherever she goes, but she meets people wherever she goes who are the life and spirit of the country that she happens to be in at the time. Well, that's why I asked the question, because it came out to me just in that, in that short reading that, these, that you had to have had these people come from somewhere because you could see them, you could feel them, you could smell them, you could hear them. So, well done. I mean, it comes through, at least for me. Thank you. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. Back to the show with Alan Dave. We've got the uh, the guy here for us. He's a Seamus Award finalist and uh, winner of two Claymore Awards. And his uh, book he's going to be reading from is called Big Fat. Oh my! Jimmy Cooper Mystery Number One. It's released in May of 2021. So tell us, Lawrence Allen, what's what's this going on with you down here? <laughs> well, you know, I'm also enjoying the beer nuts, which coincidentally are made in my hometown, Bloomington Normal, Illinois. Um, so I'm going to read from the first chapter of the book. So it's about Jimmy Cooper. He is a former child star and recovering addict who gets a second shot at fame as a famous private detective in L.A. And this chapter is what happens is the event that brings him back into the public eye. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to it, so go for it. It was a weekend afternoon in L.A., so traffic wasn't terrible, just bad. A case of mine had taken an unexpected turn, and I nervously gripped the wheel of my beloved blue Toyota as I chased a black Ford sedan west on Venice Boulevard. Three LAPD cruisers were behind us with their sirens screaming, and I was making a phone call. Over in West Hollywood, Mo picked up on the third ring. He's my neighbor, someone I can rely on, which is great, because at that moment, 
I needed his help. Jimmy, what's going on? He was bright and cheerful, probably lounging on his couch and isobiscus tea in hand, fending off the summer heat. You have to turn on Channel 5. There's a chase on. It's amazing! I glanced into the sky. There was a police chopper, and behind that, Channel 5's eye in the sky. I turned my attention back to the Ford in front of me and tightened my grip on the wheel. Uh, yeah, it's me. I'm in the chase. And it all felt somehow... familiar. Moe's voice tightened. Why is he chasing you? What did you do? I'm chasing him. Why in the hell are you doing that? That was a legit question on Moe's part. I do have a history of making bad decisions. Before I could justify this as work-related, the Ford made a sharp left. I did the same, barely making it through the intersection as a couple of cars slammed on their brakes. The cops did the responsible thing and slowed down, taking their time. Show-offs. I need you to do me a solid. I need you to call my mom. Mo was silent. Are you high right now? On pills? That's when the neurons locked into place, and I remembered why this felt familiar. More than a few years ago, after I had cratered my acting career, I had led the police... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. On the slow-speed chase through the Hollywood Hills while on a combination of booze and painkillers. I really wanted some tacos, and I knew I shouldn't have been behind the wheel, so I decided the responsible thing to do was to drive really slowly. However, when you ignore every stop sign and stop light, you're still a traffic hazard. The whole thing ended with my crashing, if you could use that word, into a grapefruit tree and becoming a viral clip on YouTube for about three months. No, I'm not. I licked my lips. I hadn't realized how much I was sweating. High-speed chases are terrifying. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. This is totally work-related. Jimmy, Mo used his dad voice, let the cops handle it. He was probably right. I can't. I had to see this through to the end. This elderly Korean couple, Mr. and Mrs. Lee, had hired me because a pushy guy kept coming around wanting to buy a painting they had. It was sentimental to them. Their only son, who had passed away, had given it to them. But maybe for the right price, they'd be willing to part with it. After all, they had their twilight years to think of. They called me because they were getting nervous. The guy seemed desperate, and they wanted to know if he was legit. Spoilers, he wasn't. When we confronted him, he took off with the painting and drove. That's when I decided to do right by them and set off in pursuit. Like I said, I wasn't always known for making good decisions. Just call my mom, I told Mo. I'm going to need a lawyer. The Ford was heading toward a park. You stop the car, Mo ordered. Let the cops handle it. You call your mom. The Ford stopped at the park with smoking tires, bumping up against the curb. The family started to scatter. The driver jumped out of the car and headed into the park. In his left arm was the painting, still framed. Oh, my. She told me I couldn't call her anymore if I got into trouble. I slammed my brakes, sliding to a stop next to the Ford. Over the years, I had seriously pushed my luck with her, and now that I was working at her firm, she would prefer that I kept my nose clean. Don't get out of the car. Don't get out of the car begged Mo, his voice rising higher. I got out of the car. Call my mom, I shouted before tossing the cell into the seat and running after the driver. I'm five foot seven, a scrappy 150, but I'm not what you call a natural runner. Sure, I can put one foot in front of another, but it's awkward and has resulted in me getting caught while my faster friends got away. The driver had reached the edge of the park, tossed the painting over the fence, and was now struggling to follow it. He looked like a high school football player who had gone soft. He was about 40 years old and wore a decent brown suit, the kind you get at a mall with a white button-down shirt and cheap shoes. That was my first clue about this guy. Never trust cheap shoes. The guy stopped trying to hop the fence, reached into his coat, and pulled out a gun. Looked like a semi-automatic something. I don't know. Guns aren't my thing. But I knew what they could do, and he was pointing this one at me. I stumbled to a stop and put my hands in the air. Whoa, 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 I said. The black metal of the gun glinted in the sunlight. I hadn't expected this. This was a guy who couldn't keep a job for more than six months. He was the sort to buy the first round, max out his credit cards, and be the last one to leave the party. 
He was desperate, but nothing in his life said he was hold someone at gunpoint desperate. Guess I overlooked something. He spoke through clenched teeth. This is how things are going to go. I frowned. Was this guy serious? Did he not see the cops? The chopper? What made him think he was in charge? Drop the weapon now! Three cops, weapons drawn, were approaching from behind, step by step, moving as one, with me stuck in the middle. The perfect place to be killed in a crossfire. I wondered this was how I was going to go out. Would it look good? Would I look good as my body was riddled with bullets like when Sonny got it in The Godfather? Jesus, what was I thinking? That's a terrible way to go. I turned to the cops, hands still high in the air. My heart pounded in my chest. Or was that the helicopters that hovered over us? I could see the other cops clearing out the park, kids clutching their parents' chests, strollers rolling away, and the yellow tape coming out. Guys, let's be cool, okay? I said to the three cops with the guns. No one wants to get shot here. The driver took that moment to look round, and one of the cops decided to take a step forward. The driver gripped his weapon and aimed it at her. All around me, the tension rammed up as the cops stopped moving and squared up, ready to pull their triggers. Hey, 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 let's not escalate, I shouted. The cops checked in with each other, wondering if they should listen to this. Oh, my. I was really hoping they would, because my plan was to not have this case end in a shooting. I was thinking I could talk the guy down. In my previous life as an actor, I had been really charming, and during my downward spiral into drugs, I got away with so much because I could spin around, studio execs, my agent, my friends, and even my family with words. The guy with the gun, he was about to get the Jimmy Cooper treatment. I took a deep breath and told him, Okay, just so you know, they might shoot you, live, on TV. I pointed up to the Channel 5 chopper. Is that how you want to go down? The driver swallowed hard. Do you have a mom or a dad? I, uh, I got both, he replied. Okay, great. Nuclear family. Some people are, are lucky that way. Now, just imagine how they would feel watching you get shot. The driver looked at the cops, who were keeping their eyes trained on him. I leaned into his field of vision and gave him my best encouraging smile, hoping to give him the extra nudge toward making the right choice. Finally, the driver dropped his gun and raised his arms in surrender. I started breathing again. Two cops swarmed him, taking him to the ground with shouting and grunts. I watched the handcuffs come out. That's when I felt the third cop grab my right arm and twist. As pain shot up into my shoulder, I asked to no one in particular, What the f- Oh, my. I tried to repeat my query, but I was being thrown to the ground. Dude, I gasped, looking up over my shoulder at the cop. I'm the good guy. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you. That's great. Now, I have to ask, where? Where did you draw this character from in your life? Uh, oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I I thought of this idea of a child star as a private detective. I was on a plane trying in my previous life. I was trying to break into television, and I was trying to write a new pilot. And I was trying to think of a good idea. I couldn't come up with a good idea, so I started asking myself, "Well, what what's a bad idea? What would be an idea that would get me thrown out of a meeting? That would get me." That, that they would, like, talk about in the break room. It's like, can you believe this guy pitched this idea to me? And I thought about, oh, it would be hilarious to pitch a former child star as a private detective. Because I love, like, detective shows from the 80s. And so I was like, oh, that'd be funny. That would be, that would. But then I couldn't stop thinking about the idea. So, like, it just kept coming back to me. So, so it's, a, it's a mishmash. So Jimmy himself is just a mishmash of my own um, anxieties and hang-ups and weird perspective on life and all the child actors that have ever been and who've crashed and burned and survived and stuff like that well well thank you that's great and we look forward to seeing you at the uh left coast crime in seattle as well this year i'm super excited yeah okay now we're down to john of course where there's always a big crowd i'm sitting here with my good friend marco caracari sipping cosmos I imagine, Marco, you might be sipping a Cosmo. And, uh, Marco, you are going to read a short story from the Saints and Sinners anthology, from last year's anthology, but you also were just uh, nominated uh, for this year's anthology, which is exciting. I'm excited to hear it. Tell us a little bit about it. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, this year, um, that's a fun little story that I got to write that's taking place in Palm Springs. I'm very happy that they included it uh, as one of the finalists. Last year's was uh, sort of my first attempt at noir. Uh, I've always loved noir movies and books, and um, 
did not write noir when I did uh, my debut novel, uh, Blackout. But this story had kind of been bouncing around in my head for years, and so um, I was happy to finally get it written a few years back, and then uh, for Saints and Sinners to think it was good enough last year to include in the anthology. Um, it's a uh, darker tale, definitely more fitting maybe for noir at the bar uh, than Blackout was. Before. Whenever I think of the day the police found my friend Grace Peterson, I smell tuna casserole. I was carrying the glass dish out to the Peterson's farm shortly before five. Its flavorful scent in my nose, the tinfoil's metallic flutter in my ears. It's been 30 years since that, uh, that October afternoon in 88, my sophomore year of high school, and I hadn't touched one since. Grace had gone missing two days earlier, after leaving school around three and never returning home. Sheriff Bowman, his two deputies, and a group of volunteers had combed her little town in search of her without luck. As I approached the Peterson's humble old farm with its two medium-sized barns, the setting sun doused everything in a warm golden hue. My mother made me wear a nice white shirt and beige dress pants, and the muggy air turned my skin damp. Dirt and pebble crunched under my blue sneakers and gripping the casserole tighter, I averted my eyes as wind like a hot breath of dust ruffled my blonde tousled hair. I'll never understand why people send food during times of crisis. Whoever praised pot roast for saving a day after losing their wife to a long battle with cancer or mac and cheese after their husband wrapped his car around a tree at 60 miles an hour. I had no spit to wet my lips, and with every step the pressure in my chest increased, heightening my sense of foreboding. I'm sorry, Kenny, this must be very hard for you. I know you two are close, Sheriff Bone had said to me in the principal's office the day before when he questioned several of us at school. Built like a linebacker who overindulged in beer and junk food for years, he'd outgrown his uniform, punishing its fabric something fierce in all the kinds of places. Despite his stature, bald head, mustache, and intimidating gun, the bags under his eyes always reminded me of Droopy from the Texas Avery cartoons. Best friends since kindergarten, right? He tried for a friendly smile, maybe to put me at ease, but his eyes showed pity. Yes, I said, sitting on a chair my legs pressing hard against its metal legs. He scribbled on a notepad, you and Ryan Hollister. I nodded once and pushed my glasses up the bridge of my nose. But Ryan's family didn't move here until second grade. Ryan was a good-looking kid, but, like me, somewhat introverted, and many classmates had treated him like an outsider. Not Grace. On the second day, she dragged me over to the newcomer during recess, and the three of us formed a lasting friendship over apples and pears she brought from the farm. You guys spend a lot of time together? I picked up my jeans. Yeah, well, used to. What changed? Uh, my grades, I said, not meeting his eyes. Uh, my parents hired a private tutor twice a week to make me get back on track. Nothing wrong with them wanting you to succeed, he said, nodding. But I see how that doesn't leave much time for your friends. Did you see Grace yesterday? Between classes, around two. Did she seem different to you at all? I shrugged. No, well, maybe kind of upset but she said it was nothing. I didn't tell him I knew she lied, but not why, and that it hurt my feelings. He wanted to know if Grace had trouble with classmates or teachers, but she got along with it, everyone, and I told him as much. What about her brother, he said in a level tone, but the twitch in his left eye didn't escape me. Bruce Jr., who'd returned that June after six years at the juvenile detention center out east, he and Grace were thick as thieves despite their five-year difference, but he never had any use for Ryan and me. They got along fine, I said. I was the one scared of him. Did she tell you about their fight? I shook my head no, but I'd heard the rumor. There was a time I'd have been the first to know. Did you see Ryan yesterday? Uh, yeah, we have class together, and I stopped by his house to borrow his notes from for homework, but he wasn't there. You didn't leave together? No, he, he didn't feel well, and Mrs. Brennan excused him early. Is that why he didn't show up for class today, he said, watching me closely. I shrugged again, wondering about that myself. What time did you go to his home? Um, after class, around 4.30. Any idea where he was? No, I said, but I have my suspicions. Sure, Bowman sighed. Grace would tell you if she was in trouble, if anyone was bothering her. Yes, I said, still wanting to believe that, even though I knew it was no longer true. And you're sure you don't know what upset her? No. The lie came so calmly, so smoothly, it surprised me. I hadn't known what bothered Grace when I ran into her, but did by the time Bowman asked me. Sorry, Kenny, this must be hard for you. I lowered my head, eyes welling up. I promise we're doing everything to bring Grace home safe.
but his words didn't make me feel any better or alleviate my fears, and I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Truth was, race, Ryan and I, we all had secrets that summer. Most we shared, but some we kept even from each other, and one by one, all began to unravel. That was great, Marco. Uh, really powerful stuff. Thank you. So what drew you to noir? Like, why did you make the shift to writing noir? I know you've continued to as well. Yeah. Uh, I, so I have these two sides to me, I guess, um, <laughs> where I see humor in almost everything. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. I can always find like a little bit of a light or a little bit of a humor, humor situation. And I love to laugh, and I definitely wanted to uh, put some of that into the debut novel, Blackout. So that was more of a mystery thrillers, um, you know, with, with light banter, but then also some serious issues. And at the same time, I have these uh, very dark moments when my mind goes to completely different <laughs> places. And I felt like, you know, that actually needs room, too. So uh, the short story, Grace, is definitely one of those where um, – it just gets a little darker, and I didn't really – I was looking for closure, but not a happy ending. And um, I just finished a manuscript that's hopefully becoming a series, um, and that is also uh, kind of dark. It's set here in Palm Springs, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, hopefully, it'll go somewhere. Agents will let me know, I'm sure. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yes, I, 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 it's a great manuscript, so I'm, uh, I'm super excited. And um, Thank you. And, and, and darkness, does, it doesn't seem very Palm Springs, but it is. <laughs> With all that sunshine. Yeah, Palm Springs, it isn't, it's not all the sunshine cocktails and Sinatra, <laughs> although that's what people see. There is a pretty dark underbelly in Palm Springs, what? which um, no. is fun to write about. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of dark underbellies, uh, Joe, <laughs> what's going on? I'm actually sipping a cocktail with the famous Shelly Adina. And then she's going to read from The Clockwork City, a steampunk adventure mystery. It's book one in the Lady Georgia Brunel mini-mysteries, uh, and I believe it's available now. So looking forward to this. First, I'm going to read a little snippet that kind of sets up the world in one paragraph and then goes straight to the discovery of the body, as one does. 400 years before, the Doge then in power had been in such fear for his life from his many enemies that he had commissioned the inventor Leonardo da Vinci to solve the problem. The great mathematician and engineer had installed a massive clockwork beneath Venice with platforms bearing up the many neighborhoods on their islands. The church bells would ring, the bridges would go up, and the neighborhoods would slowly revolve into new positions, thus confounding anyone seeking to murder the Doge. Wednesday, May 1st, 1895. Georgia rose at eight the next morning, determined to make her son Teddy proud and attempt a watercolor painting. Since they had left the ball relatively early, she had slept well and deeply. She must not get into the habit of keeping country hours, however. She set up her little travel easel on the balcony, a cup of something frothy called a cappuccino at her elbow, and realized that the morning light was its own reward. She left the little painted sketch to dry on a table in the sunny sitting room and took her equipment downstairs. There was an enchanting door on the opposite side of the canal with hanging baskets of flowers on either side that she must capture from water level. No reflections there, just simple shapes and shadows and a chance to paint the raucous reds of geraniums and impatience against the yellow stucco. Last night when Lorenzo had pulled them in, the water stairs had been nearly engulfed by the tide. This morning, as she went out through the French doors, they were half-exposed on the ebb. What on earth? George's mind took a moment to parse what it was seeing. Then she dropped her easel and paint box on the fundamente, hauled up her skirts, and descended four steps, green and glistening with slippery weed. The body of a man floated over the bottommost steps, which were still submerged yet clear in the undulating light. Close by where a short stone jetty waited to receive supplies for the household, an abandoned gondola bumped the stone with a forlorn, hollow sound. The man lay face down, his arms floating out to both sides. He wore evening dress, black coat, a glimpse of the back of a collar, black trousers, no shoes, dark hair. Spots floated in front of her eyes, and not from the sparkling sunlight on the water, either. She dragged in several deep breaths until her vision cleared. Turn him over to see who he is. 
No, she, she could not bear it. But he's floating on my water stairs. Did he come to see us and meet with an accident? He could have got the wrong address. But the houses in Venice had no addresses. There was no point since the neighborhoods changed location. And there were hardly any streets, only canals and flagstone lanes. People went to the post office for their post. It was not delivered via a pneumatic tube, as it was in London. Oh, how she wished she were in London right now, and not standing over the dead body of an unfortunate man. Get a hold of yourself, Georgia. Another breath calmed the incipient panic. She apologized to the unknown man for deserting him at such a time, and hurried inside, calling for help. The housemaid appeared instantly, took one look out of the French doors, and screamed. Georgia grabbed her by the shoulders, which made the girl gasp into silence. We must call the police. Do you understand? The police. The polizia? See, the polizia. At once. Pronto. The housemaid scurried away, wailing. The minutes ticked by with excruciating slowness on the small chronometer pinned to the lapel of her linen waistcoat. Georgia had time to drag Millie downstairs to witness the scene, and it was she who helped Georgia pick up her scattered painting equipment. Georgia's hands shook so badly that she dropped the pot of alizarin crimson altogether and wept as she tried to scrape the precious pigment back into the pot. She would never paint the geraniums opposite now. In fact, she thought grimly as she scrubbed the paint off her hands in her water closet, for tuppence she would tell Millie to pack and they would board an airship to Switzerland. The south of France, anywhere but here. A commotion in the hall brought the two of them down from the first floor sitting room to find their major domo, showing the police through to the water stairs. Signore Eroni was a man of dignity and duty and it was clear that a dead body on his premises was more than he could bear. His English was adequate for the requirements of the household, but when asked, he was simply not up to translating questions from the police in his state of mind. Millie did so in Italian, rapidly and with colloquial accuracy, though Georgia was aware that the Venetian dialect was beyond her. Who discovered the body? The taller, thinner man in the black coat and trousers asked. I did, Georgia said. I came downstairs to paint and found him floating there, as you see him. At what time? About half-past nine, I believe. The tide had uncovered four of the steps, if that is helpful. All three of them, all of them, crowded outside on the stone fundamenta as though the position of the tide upon the steps were a vital piece of evidence. For all she knew, it was. Seven are uncovered, the shorter one said. It sounded like an accusation, as though she had lied about there being four. You did take your time arriving, Georgia pointed out. Whether Millie couched this observation in politer terms in the translation or not, it was clear the policeman didn't appreciate the remark. And what is this? He pointed at the crimson stain upon the fundamente. Is it blood? The victim's blood? Certainly not, Millie said indignantly. Her ladyship spilled some of her paint in the shock of finding that gentleman. So you say he said, bending to examine the stain, which bore the evidence of George's attempts first to scrape up the pigment and then to wash the remainder from the stone with canal water. Both attempts had been clumsy and unsuccessful, and now she realized could be construed as the acts of a guilty person, which was ridiculous. Oh, please, she begged, won't you take him out of the water? He must have family or friends who'll be worried that he's not come home. It is better that we wait for the monks, the tall one said. The who? Millie blurted. Whatever for? Signore Aroni pulled himself together enough to recall his duty. The monasteries house our hospitals, Signorina. When there is a death, they come and bear the body away to be washed and tended before the funeral. Oh, but you mustn't do that, Georgia said, looking from one man to another. Not until we know how, we, how he died. All three male faces took on expressions of disgust. She realized a moment too late that she had sounded not only unladylike, but ghoulish, too. He may have met with an accident, she amended lamely. His family will wish to know. Or he may have met with murder, the tall policeman said, his hooded eyes intent upon her. We will make it our business to find out. That's great. And I, am, I have my hands over my headphones, I'm listening, and I'm saying to myself that you've hooked me into these characters already. And uh, you have a new, a new character, I'm assuming, of Georgia, and you have this new this world that she's in. How did you build up the, the fabric of this character that makes me want, makes, makes me want to say, I want to know more about her? <laughs> um, 
it's it's a spin-off series from a 12 book previous steampunk series and for being book one of a new series I wanted to take a lot of care in building her character in making her sympathetic in giving her pursuits that she was trying to be good at even if she isn't very much she's the um, wife of a baronet and he abused her during their marriage and she and now he is dead and so her son is now the new lord and he has sent her on a trip around the world so she is tasting freedom for the first time and she, that's why she wants to try and make the painting as good as it can be for her son but I'm afraid she's never going to succeed very well at painting but she is really good at noticing things yeah, you, and you get that too, and that's that's excellent. I am, I am. I always like to learn. When I hear things like that, I go, "This is how I need to build characters up and and have them experience the world around them." So, congratulations and thank you for that for me. Well, we're having some delicious cocktails down here, and we've been joined by James D. of Hand. And if I'm correct, James, you'll be right reading your short story. This will take up serpents. That that is what I'm reading. I'm I'm a contrarian among the group today. This is a short story I wrote a couple of years ago. Just a quick hit in and, out, in and out, so to speak. All them bodies crowded under the tent mixed with July humidity. It's a heady brew, the air thick with sweat and the hope of salvation. Not that anyone notices because Brother Josiah has been speaking in tongues for the past five minutes, and this enraptures the crowd. They are hearing words intended only for God, the Bible states. They eat this up, Josiah told you once, but you got to start slow, though. On a week-long revival, you can't blow your whole wad that first night. Give them a little at first to get them talking to the neighbors. By the last night, there's a full house, and you're talking gibberish, and they'll think you're a prophet. He took a long slug from a pint of Kentucky gentleman. That's where the big money comes in. Tonight's packed, just as he promised. Folks jammed in tight, spilling out across the county fairgrounds where you set up. Brother Josiah's traveling show of faith. You joined last summer after you got out of Green River. The firebug you bunked with telling you about his cousin. The road preacher always looking for help. Hiring ex-cons is what they call good optics, Josiah said. Shows we're committed to helping save souls. The truth? Ex-cons understand what's happening here. They're not about to let a little faith get in the way of a good thing. The plate passed around once already. Came back heavy. Cash checks. A mix of jewelry. Some junk. Some pieces that'll fence out nicely. It makes you think about the faith it takes to pull rings off your finger to give it to a stranger because you believe that's what the Lord commands. To be fair, Brother Josiah is charismatic as hell, young and movie star handsome, and you've got to have a bunch of suckers beyond just the hardcore old school believers. Those bastards will die someday, and to keep this working, there have to be fresh faces in the crowd. That's how you end up with these little fundamentalist girls out there their long hair and denim skirts to the ankles, and innocence in their eyes. Makes you remember how you used to believe, right up until the moment you didn't. You start thinking about the blonde girl in Alabama last month, the one Brother Josiah said had a blessing from the Lord, who he called a jubilee spirit. Josiah's hand on her shoulders, they knelt and prayed, and everyone called to the Holy Spirit for his will to be done. You watched it from Josiah's camper, smoking a cigarette and wanting the night to be done. The service ended and the crowd dispersed, and the next time you saw that girl, she was coming out of the camper, her hair a tangled mess, her face wet with tears. Josiah in the doorway, no shirt on, said they'd been studying scriptures and to make sure she got home safe. Tonight, Brother Josiah raises his Bible into the air, and the Gospel of Mark does say they shall take up serpents into their hands, and it will not hurt them at all. That's your cue. It's Friday night grand finale. What everyone's coming to see. You bring the boxes to the front of the tent. Josiah offers thanks and a wink no one else sees. He's been using the same old cotton mouths for years. Got them from another preacher. Pulling the same grift. Aged and defanged. And you keep them hungry and lethargic. They're harmless as milk snakes, Josiah says. All just for the show. He reaches into the box, brings out the first snake, and lifts it above his head. It writhes and hisses wildly. More activity than Josiah has ever seen. And there's a second of surprise in his eyes just before the snake sinks fangs into his flesh. You know 
how you'd let those old snakes go, watching them slither off to freedom before you found two fresh cottonmouths, ones that were young and full of themselves. You think about the way that young girl cried as you drove her home, the tears you cried once you stopped believing. And as the frenzy of the congregation swells, the serpent strikes Josiah again. Hallelujah. This has been a production of the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at houseofmysteryradio.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.